This is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, we'll join the grape nut, Betsy Nash, as she explores the bubbly business of sparkling wine. Can I just call it champagne? Well, you call it champagne when it comes from the region in France. But I'm just lazy, so I will do my best. Also, Dignity Moves is a nonprofit organization working with the County of Santa Barbara to develop interim supportive housing villages. The private room is almost the lure that attracts people in so that we can give them the supportive services. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, February 6th, 2023. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with the grape nut. Welcome to the grape nut. It's February. You know what that means for us grape nuts? Champagne, or as we say here in California, sparkling wine. So my guest today is Tracy Bogue, and she's the owner of Club Bubbly. It's in the creamery. Um, First of all, great name. I, I love the name. How'd you come up with that? Thank you. Um, well, just wanting to create a club at first, um, that's how Club Bubbly was started as a subscription. Oh. So, um, you know, there's sparkling wine, champagne available in all the grocery stores, but sometimes you want something different, something that's not so readily available. Mm-hmm. So that's how Club Bubbly was born. And when did you start that? And was that here in San Luis? Yes, that was created in 2017, um, started as um, a subscription and ran through uh, Lewis Wine Bar. Um, and that was doing really well up until uh, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I get had to um, kind of put that on hiatus until I found um, either a warehouse space or um, this space here in the creamery, which made the most sense. Well, it's a gorgeous place. Uh, the creamery is always fabulous. All the brickwork, uh, which is probably 100 years old, and then your bottles, you know, it's, it really is a beautiful spot. When did you open here? In late July of 2022. Okay. That brings me to a question I was going to ask later. It's freezing right now. Yes. This time of year. And yes. it's going to be Valentine's Day and we just had Christmas and New Year's and all. This seems to me to be the, the season for champagne. Can I just call it champagne? Well, you call it champagne when it comes from the region in France. Um, Anything else uh, depends where it's coming from, how it's made. Um, But there's so many good options out there that I don't want to sell them short by not calling them by their respected names. So that's why I, I really try to, when we're going through tastings and I have people in the shop, you know, providing a little bit of education behind what things are called and where they're from and how they're made. We'll get to all that, but I'm just lazy, so I will do my best. And that's another reason I like your your name, Club Bubbly, instead of Club Champagne and Sparkling Wines. Yes. From all over the world, that would be really... And Cava, and Prosecco, (laughs) and Zect, and... And then people look at you with wide eyes going, what are you talking about, lady? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good. That's why we're here, and that's why I'll be back. Yes. Um, So what I started to ask about was seasons. In July, you opened, it was hot. Yes. Do we drink different champagnes at different times of the year? And and cavas and proseccos and yes, uh, sparkling wine. <laughs> there you go. You're catching on. <laughs> different well, times of the year? I think so. Um, 
I think there are some that are timeless and you can drink them year round. And then there's some that have flavor profiles that just fit certain times of the year. Um, I had a sparkling, um, you call it Zept when it's from Austria or Germany and it tasted like apple cider. So that to me was perfect for fall. Right now, can you drink it in the spring? Yes, of course you can, but it just seemed perfect for fall. So there's things like that, that definitely feel seasonal. Someone once said that champagne is a portrait in irony. It's considered a luxury, but maybe it's more like making a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Does that say hello to you? What do you think that means? Or that person meant? Um, I'm not so sure. That's not a quote that really resonates with me, but I feel like champagne is something that you can have every day. It doesn't have to be for special occasions. Maybe your budget doesn't allow for champagne every day, but then find a great bottle of sparkling wine or cava that is or can fit your budget. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have things in the shop that start at $12. I have up to $400. I didn't expect $12. Yes, yes. And would that be one of the Cava's or Prosecco's um, or the- It is a, is it a sparkling a, wine coming from France. Sparkling wine coming yes. from France. Yes, wow. so it's not a champagne because it's not from the region, um, but it is a sparkling wine from oh. France. Yeah. Very and interesting. it's just a great everyday bubbly or something that you, if you were going to make mimosas or any kind of like fizzy cocktail, this would be the one to use. I wouldn't suggest using a champagne for uh, anything you're going to add to because then it's kind of unneeded. I gotcha. You want to taste what it has to offer. Right. So let's talk about tasting. Do you taste it the same way that you taste wine? I do. Well, so you can kind of start at the beginning when it's opened and the cork is presented to you or when you open it yourself i always smell the cork i think that's one of the best smells out there (laughs) Uh, it just is that kind of like fresh yeasty smell on the cork which i love Um, and then you know you put it in the glass i do swirl it just a little bit to get the aromas going Mm -hmm. Um, it's also why i use the glassware in the shop that i do Um, it's a riedel uh, Veritas champagne glass. So it's not a flute. Um, it's a little bit bigger in the bowl. So it allows you to kind of get, uh, the liquid moving (laughs) the champagne or the sparkling moving and allows you to also get your nose in the glass. Uh, Yeah. I noticed that it is wider, certainly much wider at the, at the base than a flute is, Yes. but it comes and pretty narrow. So I'm yes. guessing that means you still get the bubbles. Yes. I remember those old, uh, they used to call them. Are you thinking of a coupe? I'm thinking of the one that was supposedly made by Queen Josephine's breast. Yeah, the coupe. <laughs> the coupe is very decorative and fun, um, but the bubbles just kind of go straight out of it. Yeah. So it's, yeah. n- it's fun, but it doesn't really... It's not the best for the liquid in it. So then we went to the flute, yes. which feels like I can't get any nose out of exactly. it. I can't get any bouquet exactly. out of it. So I, I like this idea. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I kind of think, you know, Riedel is great. They design glassware for every different type of wine. And yeah. this is what they've designed specifically for champagne. So I'll kind of defer to them. And it's just really light and delicate. I tend to break them when I'm washing them, (laughs) but it's worth it. All Um, right. 
Yeah. Well, let's let's open this one. What are, okay. what are you opening so first? I am opening here a Prosecco. Um, I do have people who sometimes, um, when they come in and they see there is a Prosecco on the flight, um, they're a little hesitant because they say, oh no, I don't want anything sweet or I don't like Prosecco. And right. I say, well, please let, let's give this one at least a try because it is an extra brute. And so that means it's gonna be the least sweet. And if it were to say extra dry, that would mean the most sweet. That doesn't make sense. Exactly. And that's what I like to do with the education level here. I just like to at least get that through to people. That way they can see. And then if they're out shopping in a store and they need a Prosecco for you know whatever their needs are, then they know if they don't like sweet, then they need to stay away from the term extra dry or dry. Or dry. So brute. Does that mean something in French? Because I thought sec was dry in French. Yes, but this is Prosecco. So Italian. Yes. And so. a brute is brute dry. is going to be the, yes. <laughs> yes, or not sweet. That's when I kind okay. of stumble a little bit, <laughs> and I try to just say sweet, not sweet. Gotcha. Or the least sweet, <laughs> and get away from the word dry, because that's where it's confusing. All right. If you're just joining us on The Grape Nut, my guest today is Tracy Bogue, the owner of Club Bubbly, found in the Creamery. Now, I was looking forward to recording the sound of the cork popping, but you did not do that, did you? No. When you open a bottle of champagne, sparkling, Prosecco, whatever it may be, (laughs) for that sound to be as quiet as possible. Or use a really cheap bottle of sparkling wine if you want to celebrate a World Series or something like that. Does that make you nuts? Maybe you don't watch baseball. Oh, no, it doesn't bother me at all. I understand the celebration in all of that. It's just not like fine dining. I just hate to see the waste. Yes. I just hate to see the waste. So this Prosecco, tell me again, it is brute. Yeah, it's an extra brute. So it's going to be the least sweet option. I need to wipe off my lipstick (laughs) so you don't break this glass. (laughs) Yes, I usually break it on my own lipstick, so it's okay. (laughs) You're going to swirl a little bit. A little bit, yes, because you want to get the aromas going. And then you're going to get your nose in there. Yeah, so the grape here for Prosecco is Galera. This is coming from northern Italy. And the process for making the bubbles is a little bit different than a traditional champagne or sparkling wine. This is called the Charmat method. And the bubbles are made in a large tank and then they're transferred to the bottle. So it feels a little bit different texturally than a a champagne would. I'm tasting um, some apple. Mm -hmm. And at first I thought it was just a regular apple. Now I'm getting like a a little bit of a tartness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you get the apple skin and then you Mm. get the, the flesh of the apple. And right now we're drinking a Prosecco, which is not what I expected. It's not cloyingly sweet. As you mentioned, it is an extra brute. Yes. It sounds like my first husband. (laughs) Da-da-da. There you go. Rimshot, yeah. Tell us about some of the other things that distinguish the Prosecco from what we might think of as a quote-unquote regular champagne. So how it's made, being that it's a different form of making the bubble, It's called the Charmant method. So the bubble is made in a large tank and then transferred to the bottle. And it's a different grape. So this is one grape, the Galera. Okay. Um, Oftentimes champagne or cava and a lot of sparkling wine too. It's a blend. And Prosecco is often just one grape. 
And I know that there are some champagnes that will be just one certain grape, yes. but that's pretty rare. It is more rare, yeah. It's also rare for there to be a specific vintage, right? Because Correct. maybe that's what this person meant, uh, making a silk purse out of a sow's ear, a blend of all different years and mm-hmm. grapes and all. You'd mentioned the bubbles being in the tank. With champagne, the bubbles are formed in the bottle, right? Yes. So it's method champenois, method traditionnel, or a secondary fermentation in the bottle. So a lot of people have heard of riddling. That's the process mm-hmm. of getting that spent yeast down into the neck of the bottle. <clears throat> that just occurs with you know champagne, cava, um, you know traditional sparkling wines made here in the states. Yeah, because I was going to say I don't see any little lees. I think Correct. they're called. I don't see a bunch of stuff in the bottom of the bottle. So right. it comes out when it's being corked or something. If there's any of it, it'll be in the bottom of the tank. It just won't go into the into for the, the prosecco. For the prosecco, yes. Right, but for, in the bottle for the champagne. Yes, they will disgorge um, and then re-seal it with a cork. Okay. Okay. Fascinating stuff. You talk about a blend of grapes and this Prosecco just being one grape. In Champagne, it mostly blends. What are the grapes varietals that are blended most commonly? Most commonly, it's Chardonnay, uh, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. Uh, The last two being red grapes Mm -hmm. and Chardonnay being a white grape. I'm certainly familiar with the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir. Tell us about the other grape. Pinot Meunier? Pinot yes. Meunier. So that's the one m- most people ask about. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a red grape. It, it's kind of where the earthiness comes from, mm. and it still leads to a lot of crispness as well. So I do have a couple uh, champagne in the store that are heavier on Pinot Meunier. I tend to go for those. It's a personal favorite of mine. But yeah, just a special crispness, uh, earthiness there. That'd be something that somebody who knows their champagne then would come in and, and yes. ask for. Because yes. no, I, I don't want the regular stuff. I yeah. want the, okay. Yeah, there isn't a lot of it planted in champagne. So it's a little bit more rare. And so to have it, it you know, people have to search it out. Oh, interesting. Now, where did you learn all of this? How long have you been in Slow, and how did you get all this background? Yeah, I was a sales rep for a long time, working for various distributors, uh-huh. mostly here in San Luis Obispo. And so it was a lot of, you know, on-the-job training and learning, and then just being interested in it. So wanting to learn more and then doing the research to learn more. And you just chose champagne? Yeah, it kind of evolved. It was actually my first wine job. I worked at Letitia when oh, I was did. going to Cal Poly. Yeah. So yeah. started there and, okay. it, and it stuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember Letitia before it was Letitia. Yes. And um, it was all, it's yes. a great champagne, yes. a sparkling wine. Yes, <laughs> yes. Formerly Maison Dutz. Maison Dutz, right. Yes. Now, let's just talk about that for a second. That will be a blend then, yes. and it is going to be a Chardonnay and a Pinot Noir, because I know they grow both there on yeah. the, on the At land. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Yeah, they do grow both. So it just depends what it is, um, what, the, what the blends are. We see Blanc de Blancs, and we mm-hmm. see Blanc Noirs, and yes. um, I tend to like the Blanc Noirs. For yes. summer, I guess it's a more full-bodied grape. Yeah, so Blanc de Noir means white of red. So it is right. a blend made of red grapes. So that would be the Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. 
That blend wouldn't contain any Chardonnay. But do they grow Pinot Meunier here they in California? They do grow it in California, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not grown in abundance. <laughs> <laughs> and you often don't see it made on its own. Chandon up in Napa, uh -huh. I think they have one that's bottled on its own. And maybe even River Bench down in Santa Maria, they might mm -hmm. have one as well. You also were saying that you have an affinity for KCBX. Tell us about yes. that. Yes. So when I was at Cal Poly, that was my internship. Is I worked uh, for KCBX uh, during the Wine Classic, and I was their auction intern. So worked under Archie McLaren and uh, kind of cataloged all of the auction items and was able to run the silent and live auction kind of day of activities. So thank you. Of course. Yeah, no, it was a great experience. Uh, worked with a lot of great people. If you're just joining us on The Grape Nut, my guest today is Tracy Bogue, the owner of Club Bubbly, found in the Creamery. I guess I'm just thinking about um, geography and geology. Um, okay. and, I, and I'm guessing that there are, quote unquote, well, there are uh, sparkling wines that come from all over the world. So it's not as much about the, it's got to be about the terroir and the weather. Oh, I think so. Yeah. When people ask, you know, what's the big difference or why is champagne so much more expensive than cava or sparkling wine in the, in the United States, I'd say it's terroir. I mean, I stood in a vineyard in Champagne and picked up soil that looked like chalk yeah. and tossed it in the air. And it was a huge looking boulder and it weighed like ounces yeah. because it's chalk. I mean, we don't have anything like that in the States. We yeah. have amazing soils here in California that we can grow so many different crops and produce and everything, but it doesn't, it doesn't compare. Yeah. What, what is that called? It's not calcareous? Chalk. Oh. Yeah. It's chalk. I mean, and it's literal chalk. I brought some home in my bag. <laughs> Tracy just poured me a glass of a brute. This one, it's a little bit like comparing apples and oranges because it's made in a different method. Gotcha. Sure. Uh, different grapes. Different grape. And coming from a much cooler climate. This one is from England called Chapel Down, and my gosh, it's got more bubbles. It is absolutely delicious. Yeah. But England, what a surprise. Excuse me, I'm going to take another taste. <laughs> so the Chapel Down Brute, they are one of the few regions in the world that's actually benefiting, I would say, from climate change. Oh. It has gotten warmer there in the last 10 to 15 years. So what they have planted is now coming into its own. People from other regions in the world are moving to England, buying property and planting because they do see this as the future. Well, my, the grape nuts have learned quite a bit about where to plant and what grape and all mm -hmm. of that. And we are paying attention to climate change, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Yes. If you're just joining us on The Grape Nut, my guest today is Tracy Bogue, the owner of Club Bubbly, found in the Creamery. Tell me about cava. Uh, that's the Spanish. Yes. And it's made in the same way? Yes. The bubbles are created in the bottle in that secondary fermentation. They have so many rules and regulations that that's one that when, when people come in and they're looking for a gift for someone and they don't have any kind of um, idea what they're looking for, yeah. I a lot of times point them in the direction of kava because I feel like it's a really, really good value. And you bring up a great point. We're coming up on Valentine's Day. Yes. You're going to get some people in here that want to bring some champagne home and don't know what they're doing. Where do you start right. with that? Well, I can ask some sort of leading questions. If they're not quite sure, I ask, well, like, how do they take their coffee? 
Oh, really? If it's something that they put tons of oh, cream and sugar, yeah, yeah, then yeah. they want something sweeter. Yeah, gotcha. So I can go in that direction. A Cabernet that they love, and I know that Cabernet is a sweeter Cabernet, then I might lean them towards a sweeter style. The sweetest? Sec or demi-sec. Sec or demi-sec. Yeah. If someone's coming in and they don't know what to what they're buying for someone, then I wouldn't talk in those terms because they, yes. they wouldn't know. Gotcha. So instead I talk in terms that they do know. Yeah. So and that's and why I would ask like the coffee question or what else do they like and then I could I can go from there. And you could sit down and have a nice flight like I'm having because you put out a variety. And then education if they're interested. <laughs> I'm not here to bore people if they don't want to hear about it, but a lot of times they do. So. You know, I've heard that before from others that say, we'll talk your ear off if you want to get down in the exactly. weeds. But if you just want to come in and drink and go, I like it, I don't like it, thumbs up, thumbs down, yeah. we can do that too. Yeah. then I'll get out of your hair. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds to me like you've done so much studying and tasting, Yes, is my guess. Yes. Um, how many years? I'm sorry, you don't look very old. And you're talking about a lot of experience. Well, I was kind of born into it in a way as well. My dad has an irrigation company, so he's been designing irrigation systems for vineyards my whole oh, life. Oh. So I've been in the wine business one way or another since birth. <laughs> <laughs> so you fell right into it. Where'd you go to school? Cal Poly. Had business with wine and viticulture as a minor. Okay. That can date me. That can show you how old I am. Really? <laughs> yes. They don't have the minor anymore. It's now just a major. My guest is Tracy Bogue, the owner of Club Bubbly. We're here in the Creamery in San Luis Obispo. Uh, it's a very welcoming, very fun and warm atmosphere in here. I want to talk about foods. You know, I, I usually do this when I talk to someone who's uh, talking about a specific varietal and all. But it occurs to me, almost anything would go with champagne. I'm not, is that right? I think it's one of the more versatile uh, wines out there. But for me, if you're looking... Excuse me just a minute. And sparkling wines. There you go. <laughs> if you're looking for a good pairing, yeah. um, I I go simple. I think one of the best pairings out there for champagne and sparkling wine is French fries. This moment of silence is brought to you by... <laughs> really? Yes. yes. The, the salt and the and, and the acidity. The so the salt and the fat of yes. the French fry right, right. break through the crisp and the acidity of the champagne. Gotcha. Which is why I see popcorn yes. down here for sale. Yes, I have popcorn and I have potato chips. Um, I do not have a kitchen here, so yeah. you know that would be my ultimate dream, I think, to have French fries here. <laughs> but I do have some great neighbors here in the creamery that you can get some French fries from. Yeah. Um, so you are more than welcome to bring fries in. And therefore, anything that's going to have a nice, rich, perhaps, uh, sauce, but maybe not something like chicken piccata, which is kind of lemony. You might just want a slightly richer champagne to break through the lemoniness. Well, what do you mean by richer? Well, um, a style, maybe it has a little bit more brioche notes. Again, a moment of silence. What does that mean? Brioche, fresh baked bread. Yes. And how do you get it's that? a little bit heavier. Tracy, what would you like people to know, if anything, before they come in to Club Bubbly to buy some sort of celebratory wine for Valentine's Day? I would like them to know that there's plenty of options, that they should never feel intimidated when it comes to any like questions about wine. Um, this is a place to ask those questions, and there's 
options at different price levels. Yeah, I'm here to help. So what I've learned is that it's not all about Lafitte de Rothschild and Dom Perignon and all of those that we know the name of and we could never afford, but it's also not about something on sale at the market. Right. I try to support smaller producers and highlight those. So I do occasionally make an exception when it's a producer that I really like, but I'll try to also carry something from that producer that's a little bit harder to find. Well, this has been great. Thank you. Uh, Very enjoyable, very fun to get to know you and to get to know Club Bubbly. So thanks a lot. Thank you for coming by. This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Dignity Moves is a nonprofit organization working with the County of Santa Barbara to develop interim supportive housing villages. There's one in Santa Barbara and another planned for Santa Maria. The portable villages have private rooms and fill the gap between living on the streets and finding more permanent housing. Contributor Beth Thornton spoke with Elizabeth Funk from Dignity Moves. This is Beth Thornton. I'm joined today by Elizabeth Funk, founder of Dignity Moves. Her organization creates interim supportive housing communities for people experiencing homelessness. Hi, Elizabeth. You founded Dignity Moves just a couple of years ago. Correct. It's new. Say a little about yourself and what inspired you to start this organization. Well, I've had a crazy career path. It's been quite a zigzag. I started my career in technology. I was early at Microsoft and then very early on the early team of of young. Back in the early days of the internet. And so I was a tech entrepreneur type person and then ended up in impact investing, investing in businesses that have a social a social impact and good in developing countries, primarily focused on poverty alleviation. So I've been an investor and an entrepreneur, and I've not been in the philanthropy business at all. Um, and yet, obviously, homelessness is such a such a raw topic for all of us in California and, and unfortunately nationally. And so a group of us. I'm a member of Young Presidents Organization, YPO, and a group of us as business leaders came together as a task force to put our heads together and just study and try to understand this problem, try to figure out why in the world it's so out of control. And as we started to look at it, a couple of really obvious hypotheses came, and I'll never forget the day I was sitting there and I was thinking, oh man, I'm going to have to do this. <laughs> so I didn't really intend to start an organization, but it kind of happened to me. And um, and that was in 2020. That was during the pandemic. I did literally over 350 30-minute Zoom calls just to learn and understand this problem. And, and uh, back before people had Zoom fatigue. Uh, <laughs> you share some of those hypotheses with us? Yeah. The issue that w- became very obvious to me was, first of all, we have big budgets to, to address homelessness, but, but most governments are spending all of it on permanent housing, which is noble. But the problem is with our building codes and our this tax credit stacks and so forth, it is so expensive and so cumbersome. It's taking $800,000 per unit in most of our big cities, and it takes five years. And you look at the numbers, we're never going to build enough permanent housing for everybody who's, who, who wants it and who gets on those waiting lists. The waiting lists are many years. In San Francisco, it's 14 years. And the other thing that I learned is that when people first fall into homelessness, most of them do not yet have a debilitating mental health or drug addiction problem. The vast majority don't. 30 days after being on the street, that number has changed. And if you're waiting on the street for 14 years, the chances of having a debilitating problem that's, that's going to prevent you from being self-sufficient are, are astronomical, right? And so 
And when people first become homeless, most of them were self-sufficient yesterday, but they can't get back on their feet. The third thing I learned is that people overwhelmingly don't want to go to group shelters. They would prefer to be on the street than to be in a bunk bed next to strangers. And so when they become homeless, their only choice is a group shelter or the streets and they don't take it. Therefore, they're on the streets. And that's when that trauma sets in and the drugs become appealing. And it, it, we're creating this problem. It's making it worse and exacerbating it by leaving people there. So when we looked at it, how can we solve for building a place where people are willing to come so that the, that trauma doesn't happen and so that they are geared and in a place where they have a chance to rebuild their lives? You can't rebuild your life and get a job without Wi-Fi, a shower, some food, and you're in trauma mode. We learned in eighth grade science that your head, your brain is, you can't be thinking about things like jobs when you're worried about getting your next meal and, and getting attacked. And so, um, so we set out to find a way to build what we call interim supportive housing. That is, everyone gets their own room with a door that locks, which means they really want to come, and then they get the support that they need. And, and the, the hypothesis is that then much higher percent of them can self-resolve, can reunite with family, find other outcomes out of homelessness, and maybe not need to be in government-funded, permanent-supportive housing for the rest of their lives. Sounds like getting people off the streets as quickly as possible is key to reducing the trauma. Correct. And, you know, I want to be clear. We need permanent housing. We need lots of it. And we are, this is not an either-or. And I think that, unfortunately, lots of times people think about it that way. The train that is moving as fast as it can to build permanent supportive housing and permanent affordable housing, that's incredible. What we are is an, is, a, is an alternative to shelters, to group shelters and to encampments. So we are trying to upgrade that waiting room, <laughs> so to speak. You just announced a partnership with the County of Santa Barbara called Dignity Now. Explain that partnership and what it encompasses. Well, so we built our first project in downtown Santa Barbara last year. And it's 35 rooms, it's right in the heart of downtown, and it's been so well received, both from the residents as well as from the community. And the residents are getting jobs, they're, they're, they're just thriving. And so the county had talked to us about maybe wanting to do another, another project in North County. And one afternoon I thought, you know, why are we doing this 30 rooms at a time? What's the total need in the county? And they have a stated shelter gap of 563 beds that they need in order to have enough beds per their system that would be sufficient based on turnover rates and all their, their assumptions. They need 563 beds back in 2018. And when they did their status update in 2021, they'd built 140 of them, but they still needed 432. So we looked at it and said, well, why aren't we doing 432, <laughs> right? Let's just do it. And I think there are a lot of benefits to doing it all at once. First of all, you can have them scattered around the county. So it's a lot harder for one region to complain that we, why do we have to have the shelter? You do them geographically based on the, 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 where the locations are of encampments and where the homeless are geographically. You can also specialize them. You have one for families. You can have one for domestic violence survivors. So when you look at it in a holistic way, rather than doing one at a time, all of a sudden it becomes a, it's a totally different project. It also means that you've got economies of scale in terms of cost. You can, you know, you're doing them all at once. There's efficiencies to that. Um, and quite frankly, from a funding perspective, donors get excited about taking on the big problem rather than chipping away at it. So 
We, this is an experiment, the first time we've done this, and um, it's off to a great start. I'm really excited about this strategy. This is Beth Thornton in conversation with Elizabeth Funk from Dignity Moves. Her organization is working in Santa Barbara County to create temporary interim housing villages. Can you talk a little about the funding? I know it's a private-public partnership. What does that mean? Yes. Uh, so what it means is that we'll take the downtown Santa Barbara project as an example. We raised about two-thirds of the construction cost for that from philanthropy, and the county contributed one-third. The way I see it is that to build the units themselves, philanthropy loves to invest in something they can see and touch. And quite frankly, the way we've designed these, it's so inexpensive compared to permanent housing that the construction costs are an attainable, viable number for philanthropy to contribute. The annual operating budgets year after year for those supportive services, that's a lot harder to be reliable. And so when you think about a partnership, you specialize in what each can do best. So Dignity Moves can focus on fundraising for the capital, and the county contributes the ongoing supportive services. The county also is contributing the land. They own the sites that we're using, so we don't have to buy land. And of course, these things are temporary, so we set them up for five years or so. You can pick them up and move them. We relocate the communities. So the public-private partnership is the county contributes the land. Dignity Moves is raising most of the capital costs from philanthropy, and the county will be contributing the ongoing supportive services costs. And the residents are referred in through other services, and they stay for about an average of six months? In general, on average, people come in, and it's, yes, it's six to 12 months. It takes a couple months. Usually when people become homeless, one of the first barriers is if you don't have a driver's license or a legal ID, you can't get a job, you can't do anything. And they need to get their license renewed. But in order to do that, they have to find their birth certificate. That takes a couple months. So, you know, there's there's lag times, and particularly for people who have been chronically homeless and been on the street for a while. And there's also an emotional stabilization time that it takes to take a deep breath and regroup. And so, and then finding jobs and reuniting with family. You know, when you are on a Dignity Moves project, you are actively working on those things. It is not a place to come sit and, and rest. This is you get case managers, and you are really working on a plan, and you take advantage of, of that opportunity. So they're connected to support services. If they need mental health support or need help to overcome a substance issue, that's provided. Well, actually, I'll say it the other way around. The whole reason to do this is because then they can access the supportive services. In my mind, so the supportive services is available 24-7, there's staffing, there are meals, you have a case manager assigned to you who works with you on what your goals are and how to get there. In my mind, to be kind of blunt, like the, the private room is almost the lure that attracts people in so that we can give them the supportive services. The cause and effect is kind of the other way around. It's, um, it's really the, the way that we can convince people that they should come inside so that we can then start helping get over those barriers. In each place, we work with a different supportive services partner who's an expert in that region. In Santa Barbara County, Good Samaritan is one of the, the biggest and therefore has been our partner in downtown and will be our, our partner on most of the new projects, I would guess. But there will be some that will be specialized. For instance, some of the units in our Santa Maria project are going to be reserved for transitional age youth, people aging out of the foster system, 18 to 24. That's going to be managed and the supportive services will be a different organization called Fighting Back. It's a new approach. Are you able to measure the success of this yet? The supportive services that get delivered have been happening for years. Good Samaritan's been, you know, 40 years around. The thing that is new is people having their own private room instead of a group shelter. 
And of course, the way that we are doing them is new in terms of the construction and the, the low cost and all of that. But the concept isn't so new. What we have a hypothesis is that when people have their own private room rather than in a group shelter, that the services are going to have a higher probability of being effective because the person is truly relaxed and feels safe and that they're really out of that survival mode and that tension and that adrenaline. But the statistic that I do have that I can rely on from the beginning, just what percent of people are willing to accept the housing placement? People are usually very, very hesitant. And you know, outreach workers go out to an encampment and offer somebody a bunk bed. They're lucky if one out of 10 will take it. Well, the thing I'm proud of is no one has turned down Dignity Moves. And in fact, they have wait lists that are so long they have to close the wait list. So that's what I know is working, is that people are willing to come. Whether or not they then have a higher probability of, of successful outcomes, whatever that definition is, is yet to be determined, but it's looking good. Do you think that in the general population, the attitude is changing about finding solutions to homelessness? I do. And there are a number of reasons. So first of all, I actually think the pandemic helped on this a lot because people were allowed tents. And so it was very visible. Of course, it did also scale visibly because we had to reduce the number of people in group shelters because of social distancing and those sorts of things. But I think a couple of other things that have changed that have been notable. One is a famous law case that happened in the state of Idaho called Martin versus Boise, where homeless advocates sued the city of Boise and said, you shouldn't be allowed to enforce your anti-camping or anti-sleeping laws if somebody doesn't have a place to go. That's inhumane. You can't punish them for something they can't avoid. And, and that was upheld by the Ninth Court Circuit of Appeals, the Supreme Court of Appeals. And so that applies to the states on the West Coast. And so it's not law, it's precedent, which is a subtlety. So it's not spelled out clearly. But cities know that they are at risk of being sued by homeless advocates if they don't have enough shelter beds and they try to break up an encampment or relocate somebody. So there's, there are different motivations for why there's all of a sudden more interest in getting people indoors. This is a conversation with Elizabeth Funk from Dignity Moves about the new interim housing village planned for Santa Maria. An announcement just went out to the community that there's a new village planned for Santa Maria. And for people who are just hearing about it, how can you put people at ease about having the interim village in their community? If you're a concerned resident, you have two choices. You either have homeless people who are sleeping on your streets, visible, they are desperate, they are hungry, they are upset, or you have homeless people behind a wall with 24-7 staffing, meals, therapists, coaches, case managers. The third choice, that you don't have homeless people in your community, is not an option because of Martin versus Boise, for instance. So that's the first answer. The second answer is, that the supportive services are amazing, right? And they have 24-7 staffing and security. They're trained in de-escalation. All those fears that people have, particularly with Good Samaritan and Fighting Back, they know how to make sure that they are the best neighbor in the, in the community. The next thing, though, is that we are prioritizing people who are already in Santa Maria and the region. And so one of the concerns people have about shelters is they're worried that they're importing and attracting homeless. This is going to be for people who are already there. And if that neighborhood is what gets to see the visible and measurable difference. And so it's truly, it's a, it's a benefit in that way. And the other thing that's important is that there will be no guests and visitors allowed. And so um, you do not get to enroll by, by coming to the site and signing up. You sign up elsewhere. So when do you anticipate opening this project? That'll be late summer. Construction is starting soon. It's designed. It's going to be 94 rooms. 
Some of them will be couples, so it'll be slightly more than 94, depending on who's who's in residency. Um, some portion of them will be for people who are associated with the medical system, the Marion Hospital, um, either exiting or mat- medically fra- fragile or need extra care. And 11 of the rooms will be reserved for transitional age use. The Santa Barbara location is right downtown, and you can honestly walk by it and not know what it is. We take the aesthetics very seriously. So Gensler is one of the world's leading architectural firms, and they do all of our design work for us in a trauma-informed way. But they do beautiful work. And in fact, we even consult with the local architects. We've got the color palettes, and they really make it a beautiful village. So it's it's something that people would be proud to have in their neighborhood. And as you, you said, there's a beautiful stucco wall. It's not an eyesore. Some parting thoughts on whether you think we're making good progress on combating homelessness in California? Um, it's hard. The numbers are growing. It's growing faster than it's being solved. I believe that the cities that are and counties that are thinking seriously about this interim model have a good chance because we can do it so quickly and so at such scale. But let's be clear, what we're doing isn't solving homelessness. We're getting people off of the streets and ending the unsheltered portion of homelessness. Don't try to claim that we are solving it or we know the answer. But I do believe that this interim housing model of having dignified places where people are willing to come has been a big missing piece. That was Elizabeth Funk with Dignity Moves. You can find out more about interim housing at DignityMoves.org. For Issues and Ideas, I'm Beth Thornton. This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. I'm Carol Tandreman. After a short break, we'll be back with the nonprofit story. Host Dr. Consuelo Mukes' guest is Catherine Rontaler Krieg of One Cool Earth. We'll be right back.
This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast, the nonprofit story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes, your host. I am so excited today to have Catherine Rontaller-Krieg. She is the executive director of One Cool Earth, and I just think this is one of the coolest nonprofits. So, Catherine, thanks for taking the time to come to the nonprofit story. Thank you so much for having me here. You're kind of new in the area. Yeah, I lived here many years ago and found my way back. um, And I joined One Cool Earth in May of 2022. Tell us about One Cool Earth and a little bit of its background and its mission. One Cool Earth is a school garden nonprofit. And our mission is to create garden programs that grow happy, healthy, smart youth. And our program was founded in 2001 by a man named Lionel Johnson, Mm -hmm. who took to planting oak trees um, and reforesting our community. And Mm -hmm. he worked with many volunteers and students and uh, motivated folks to get outside and plant trees. About 10 years after the initiation of the organization, Greg Ellis joined the team, and he started to kind of transform it to focusing on school gardens and building gardens at elementary, um, middle, and high schools and bringing curriculum to to those spaces. And today, we're currently at 29 schools across San Luis Obispo County serving roughly 11,000 students. So let's tell everyone what you do. How do you actually serve students with gardens? So we partner with public schools. Um, We go to the school site and we either are taking a garden uh, that maybe needs some, some revamp and uh, building or building a garden from the ground up. And once we have the space set up, we place a educator at that school site to um, partner with the school to not only maintain the garden, but then also provide garden education classes. So teachers can then sign their classes up to come out to the garden on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a full curriculum that is next generation science standards aligned. And the three three pillars of our curriculum are food, water, and waste. Well, so perfect for this particular area too, just exactly for it. And you're saying that you have 29 schools. Is that all through San Luis Obispo County or just in certain areas? We're throughout the entire county. We're district-wide at elementary schools in Atascadero Unified School District and Paso Unified School District. So when you say the teachers can sign their classes up, does that mean individuals in the classes or do some levels of uh, classes get to be a part of this program? Any teacher at the school has the opportunity to take a look through which series our uh, educator is offering and sign up for that series. And so the entire class will come out to the garden um, and engage in the space. So we want to talk about those series and find out a little bit more. But I thought there was some really interesting information on your website and elsewhere about why you do this, such as the health of students and uh, the academic aspects and the well-being and how so many young people now are getting diabetes before a certain age. And so you do so much with educating in this way. Yeah, this work, I have, I've seen the impact of it. Um, mm-hmm. It is really powerful to have a garden within the school setting. Often at, at first glance, it may just look like, you know, 
cute kids picking flowers in the garden, um, but there's so much more mm-hmm. to it than that. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in when there's a garden in the in the school setting, it allows children to connect with their food on a deeper level and to uh, connect with their food system. So being able to see how broccoli grows, mm-hmm. and I've seen kids begging to eat more kale out of the <laughs> That's garden. Wonderful. You know, to to be able to identify and connect with their food will allow them to develop a healthy relationship with their food. That's fantastic. Uh, I know it was saying that by the age of twenty, one in three elementary students will be overweight. More mm-hmm. in ten will have type two diabetes. And the other thing that was interesting is that uh, gardens can help students who struggle with learning science. To increase their scores by up to seventeen percent. Yeah, this is an—it's an incredibly engaging way to learn. Mm-hmm. To be outside um, and to be able to sink your hands into the soil. You know, we really believe you can't be ter- teaching earth and life sciences without earth and life. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then it, it stays. It stays with the student as they grow up, too. Right. And it, it allows for students to have inquiry and, and discovery mm-hmm. and to ask their own questions and to dive into that scientific process in a way that's really natural that um, some students don't do well within, you know, the four walls of a classroom. That's true. Yeah. And they learn to love kale and broccoli. All right. I love that. So let's get into the programs that you have at the schools. The tiers of our programs, we we actually have two tiers coming Mm -hmm. up next year. Mm -hmm. We plan to have two tiers. Um, The standard program being a weekly program um, where our educator is placed at that school on a weekly basis and teachers can sign up their classes on that specific day. And then our premium program will be two days a week. And Mm -hmm. this will allow for a deeper engagement um, with One Cool Earth at that school community, um, as well as allowing our educator to have more time in the garden and provide more opportunities for engagement. In addition to to the curriculum that our educator is teaching, we also have a host of add-ons that schools can choose from. Uh, and these, you know, range from uh, things like a family cooking night where mm-hmm. our educator um, puts together materials for families to actually take home. It's a virtual cooking night, and they take nice. home a... Um, ingredients box and then our educator leads a cooking class with uh, their families and the kids are getting a chance to uh, cook alongside their families in their home kitchens and and uh, learn where things are and get a chance to engage in that process with their parents. That's wonderful. Is it on Zoom? Yep. That they can all sit yep. and see it and yep. then see the food. That's amazing. Yeah, and then a couple other of our add-ons are things like a after-school farm stand um, that our educator will set up produce that's been harvested in the garden and parents can come and pick it up and take it home. Um, we also partner with the Slow Food Bank to set up mm-hmm. a food pantry at uh, many of our Title I schools um, so that the food bank will come out and set up a food pantry in our gardens and then parents can come to the school site and um, take home take home fruits and vegetables as well as pantry items. So the impact spreads way past just the school. It's spreading into the community too. Yeah. A new program that we're really excited about uh, launching that it's p- part of the public health ARPA grant is that our educators are going to be trained as CalFresh advocates. Mm-hmm. So they will be promoting the food assistance program for families in need. Uh, and we're really excited to just, you know, have a trusted member of the community share about that resource and 
get the word about for families that are food insecure. If you are just joining us, this is Dr. Consuelo Mukes. I am the host with Nonprofit Story, and I'm speaking with Catherine Rontaller-Creek. She is the executive director of One Cool Earth, and we're talking about this incredible program that's in 29 schools serving 11,000 students across our county. So tell us a little bit more about how you get your garden educators. Our educators come from all different backgrounds. Uh, the wonderful thing about this position is it's... Um, you know, very interdisciplinary. So we have we have some of our educators come with an education background and are skilled teachers. Some of our educators come with a background in food and farming and are excellent gardeners. Um, and we work with our educators to train them um, and share resources and learn from from each other as a team to build a really strong strong team of educators mm-hmm. to bring this good work out to our schools. So are you looking at a team of 29 people? Are you going, or do they go to different schools? How does that work? We currently have 11 educators, mm-hmm. um, and our our staff total for all of One Cool Earth is 17. Um, and our educators are, are uh, some of them are part-time, some of them are full-time. Mm-hmm. So are you looking for more? We will be hiring in, uh, coming in the spring. Okay, so that's good. And how do you support your educators? How are they um, educated about exactly what you need? Right, we provide professional development either in-house by our own team or we do bring in other folks to share resources and get them trained so that they are confident in um, leading our curriculum at their school sites. And I notice you have a lot of your great curriculum right on your website if people want to see it. We do, yeah. We offer it as a a free resource uh, and we encourage our our teachers to check out our curriculum on our website and utilize our gardens when we are not there. And we also encourage anyone that's interested in starting a garden program wherever they are, they are welcome to check out our website and use our curriculum. That's very generous of you to do that for this community. So garden supplies, um, are those covered by the school itself or are they covered by One Cool Earth? How does that happen? Uh, Garden supplies can be a combination of um, funds from the PTA, PTO, but we make sure that each school gets an equitable amount. Um, So each garden is receiving the same funds, whether or not the PTO is able to provide that funding. Mm -hmm. So tell us any, um, like, do you have any stories about any of great things that have happened because of this program? Yeah, well, um, I mentioned Greg Ellis as one of the longtime contributors to the organization. He worked with a student many years ago who has gone on to graduate and um, has been impacted by um, the school garden, and it's impacted his life in an incredibly positive and meaningful way. And we've been able to follow some students throughout their years to see how it's changed, you know, their connection to the natural world and, you know, their own personal lives as well. Mm -hmm. So you also have Spanish versions, I see, of curriculum. Yeah, our our curriculum uh, at Spanish Immersion Schools is taught in Spanish, so a number of our educators are bilingual. And um, we translated all of our curriculum to Spanish uh, last year. Mm -hmm. We just have a few minutes, but what's some of the uh, 
specific curriculum that you have? Because I think people would be so excited to hear about that, like space travelers and weather science <laughs> and waste audit. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, a big focus of our program, as I mentioned, food, water, and waste are the, the kind of three pillars. Um, and a big focus is waste education. So um, getting students aware of where their waste should go, um, how to reduce their waste, and also water watershed education. So a mm-hmm. big, you know, a, a big thing that we all all of Californians should be aware of mm-hmm. is their impact on mm-hmm. um, on on our watershed mm-hmm. uh, as well as our our waste. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Our watershed. Yeah, well, um, you know, we are consumers of water, mm-hmm. uh, and there are many ways to reduce consumption of our of our water. Um, you know both through our own personal uh, uses and also through industry. And um, so we take a look at that in our curriculum and dive into um, where our water is coming from and how we can reduce our consumption of it. That's a great thing. And I think with this rain, maybe it's going to change some things. I see you have a lot here about grafting the drought and (laughs) the drought-hardy gardens, but we still have to probably be very aware of that in our area. Yeah, the recent storms have opened a lot of students' eyes to how powerful our environment is. Mm. And, um, you know, we often feel control as human human beings, but, but there are many things that are out of our control. And climate education is one of the pieces of that. And um, we've utilized this opportunity to dive into those discussions with these recent events. So, Catherine, would you please tell us how people can learn more about One Cool Earth by telling us about how to find your website? Sure. Uh, Yeah, you can visit our website um, at www.onecoolearth.org. We also are active on social media on Instagram and Facebook. And we have a newsletter that you can sign up for and find out about updates and events. Wonderful. And that website, one more time? onecoolearth.org. Well, this has been Catherine Rontaller-Creek speaking to us. She is the executive director of One Cool Earth, a really cool nonprofit that's helping 29 schools and 11,000 students in San Luis Obispo County. This is the Nonprofit Story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments. KCBX dot O-R-G.